Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, folks. This is Alona Thompson with Palette Exposure. Welcome. I have a fantastic guest today. I'm so excited. I could hardly contain myself. I've been very privileged to have known Bob Cabral for a number of years, and I've tasted a multitude of his phenomenal wines. You, of course, may know him from William Zellian fame, where he spent 16 years of his professional life. But even prior to that, he worked for some amazing brands like Deloach and Hartford. And he's currently uh, a winemaker at Three Sticks, which is Bill Price's brand, of course. He also has his own, Bob Cabral Wines, which we'll talk about at length. Welcome. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's always good to uh, have a good chat with you. And it's always good to catch up. So I'm glad we could do this. Yes, no, we're recording the times of COVID, which you know we thought would have some finality, but now that times of COVID, quote unquote, may mean in the foreseeable future. So we got to know each other well via Zoom with people that normally we don't have as much time, you know, because the schedules are so busy to spend. So it is such, I guess it's one of the fringe benefits of COVID. We, we get to have time. Yeah, and making time for, for friends and just checking in with people. I, I um, kind of made a promise to myself to try and call a few people that I just haven't spoken to very often that I would like to. And just even to have a 10 or 15 minute talk and many times that turns into 45 minutes to an hour. And, and it's great just to check in with people and see how they're doing. And they, we're in, in some very interesting times and I don't really see, uh, not, not to sound dismal, but I don't see an end to this. So I think we need to adapt mm -hmm. to, to these times and um, you know just keep moving forward. So yeah, I, I think that. it's good. Absolutely. Now, those human connections um, are probably the most important part of human experience and people that you like, um, just reach out. Like Bob said, you know, you'd be surprised how much value you get out of it and how much better it makes you feel. It does. It just brings a smile to your face kind of thing. That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and speaking of smiles, I really enjoyed your personality in addition to your wines. Every time I would walk into a walk around tasting, you're always so positive, so generous. You're always smiling. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen you like frown and be like in, in a different yeah. mode. Yeah, I, th I think a few assistant winemakers and a few people that have worked for me would probably have a different opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I've literally never seen you frown. So I'm like, you're one of the most positive people I've ever met. Well, you know, I think that um, I feel pretty fortunate. I've had just an amazing life and career in wine. And I mean, who would have ever thought that, um, you know, all of this could transpire out of something as simple as growing grapes and making wine. And uh, for me, growing up in the San Joaquin Valley, outside of Modesto in a little town called Escalon, I grew up on 70 acres. And my dad farmed wine, grapes, and almonds. We called them almonds back then. And I've since been corrected since college and, and post-college days. Um, my grandparents farmed as well. And, you know, it was just more of a kind of a lifestyle that uh, there was wine on the table. It was not cork finished. It usually had a screw cap on it. It was a rather large jug of some 
sort, and it was known as either red or white, and that was about the extent of it. And so you either either grew red wine grapes or white wine grapes, and that was that was kind of my initiation into grape growing and even even winemaking. Um, you know, growing up in the '70s in the San Joaquin Valley, I you know I did. I didn't really didn't work for anybody else except my my father and my grandfather. So I did a lot of tractor driving. I did I took care of a lot of different ranches. My dad had a farm management company, so uh, he would uh, farm. People would buy these these large properties, and then he would farm it for them. And uh, I would just spend hours on the tractors in the summertime and. Uh, you know, we had lots of animals at home. I participated in 4-H and FFA and learned to do record bookkeeping and kind of that responsibility of having to take care of animals where they had to be fed twice a day. You had to doctor them. You had to take care of them. Uh, I think all of that kind of molds a person uh, from a very young age into a work ethic that I think has kind of carried me through uh, my career in in winemaking and grape growing, especially up here in the North Coast. You know, at one point I was really into animals. I worked for a veterinarian one summer and, um, you know, thought I wanted to become a vet and uh, saw the course catalog at University of California at Davis, applied to Davis, Fresno State, Cal Poly. And, um, you know, got into all of the schools, but then realized that it was going to be eight years of of additional schooling and I was just finishing the 12th grade. So at the ripe age of 18 years old, I, I decided to shift a, to a different direction. And I kind of ended up in winemaking. I actually ended up going down to Fresno State, which was my dad's alma mater. And, um, you know, down there, uh, I had such a great experience where I showed up on campus and uh, was wandering around the Department of Enology and I had barely been moved into my dorms for more than a few hours. And I ran into this guy and he asked me my name and uh, I said, my name's Bob, I'm from Escalon. And he kind of chuckled and smiled and said, oh, God's country. <laughs> and I looked at him kind of, kind of inquisitively, and he said, so Bob, uh, what are you planning to study here at Fresno State? And I said, well, I'm, I'm an enology major, and uh, I think I want to become a winemaker. Mm -hmm. And he said, great, what are you doing right now? And I said, uh, just kind of touring the campus. He said, well, um, follow me, we're going to go pick some grapes and let's make some wine. Oh and God. come to find out, this was the department chair, uh, Carlos Muller. Um, Dr. Muller took me out. We literally picked about a half ton of grapes. Uh, they were some really kind of raggedy old uh, muscat vines. And we brought them into the winery. We ran them through a crusher. We pressed out the juice. And of course, he made me clean everything <laughs> as he kind of walked me through this. And it was about eight or 10 hours later, we finally had a few glass carboys of juice that we, we were settling in a cold room. So that was kind of my first experience at Fresno State and it, it just kind of paved the path for my interest um, 
that somebody somebody was going to take that much interest in me yeah. um, so quickly. Uh, he was definitely one of those people that kind of changed your life. You know, you talk about different teachers or people throughout your life, uh, mentors that you've had. And Carlos was definitely one of those guys. And even when I moved up to the, uh, up to the North Coast here, up to Healdsburg, uh, I would go down, I'd try to go down to Fresno at least every other year, if not every year. And I'd take him out to breakfast and uh, I would visit some other friends that I had down there uh, up until when he passed away about 10 years ago. So it was a friendship that kind of, you know, really developed uh, very early on. And, um, and it was just a great experience. So, uh, you know, four years at Fresno State, I worked for Bronco Wine Company during that time. Uh, up in Escalon, I had grown up with the Franzias. And uh, John Franzia was one of the, um, the owners of JFJ Bronco, so John, Fred, and Joe, and um, my dad, and we, we grew up, I grew up about three or four miles from John and Mary Lynn Franzi, and their oldest daughter, Carol, was in my grade, so I think we started about the third or fourth grade together and then went through high school, and so we still talk, Carol and I, um, I see her at different wine events, and it's kind of fun to be able to um, connect back to people that you've known since grammar school. Yeah. So my dad saw John at, at a uh, church function and just, he asked what I was doing after, after graduating high school. And he said he was going to, uh, I was going down to Fresno state and my dad said, and he needs a job, you know, <laughs> to pay for some of this. So uh, I interviewed with a grower relations, a guy named Tom Valdero who did all the grape buying for Bronco Wine Company. And um, he was kind of my mentor. And I started checking grapes and doing viticultural observations and pulling samples, vineyards from Stanislaus County down to Tejon. So, you know, 300 miles of the San Joaquin Valley, kind of from I-5 to Highway 99 and every variety and uh, imaginable grape you could think of red white and indifferent so I learned a lot about just observing vineyards and um, how they grow when the guy I had to write down observations of like when they were irrigating if they were spraying something what were they spraying for was it an insect was it a uh, virus whatever it happened to be so that actually really helped me in school um, you know, as I went through classes, plant physiology classes, microbiology classes, you could kind of tie in um, and ask specific questions of the instructors there at Fresno State um, that really applied real world uh, to real world winemaking. So I worked out of the Bronco Fresno plant and um, their capacity at the time that I started there was something like 28 million gallons. So that was, that was a pretty big size winery. And um, I remember one day, I think I was going into my senior year, either my junior or senior year. So it would have been the summer of 83 or maybe 84, 82, 83, 84, somewhere in there. And, um, 
they had me work the sugar shack, which every truck load. So everything was delivered in 24 ton loads. So a set of doubles. And uh, you had to take a sample and check it for material other than grape, mog. You'd run a sugar. And then there was a guy from the USDA there as well. So that they, they would run some of their tests as well from uh, for the state of California. So I worked on the sugar shack that day. I relieved another guy, but in 22 hours, we had uh, taken in 3,300 tons of fruit, a lot of it being machine harvested. And I had one truck pull up and we had this big mechanical um, device that went down and grabbed the gray, went over the trailer hydraulically, went into the, pulled a sample, you brought it back, you dumped it into a five gallon bucket. And when I pulled it out of the the juice, all of this oil dripped off of it. And it was some mechanically harvested fruit that uh, the tractor had a, or the harvester had a hydraulic hose break and it had filled the container with hydraulic fluid. So we obviously had to reject the grapes <laughs> for I to call in. I called one of the assistant winemakers out to the to the sugar shack and said, you're going to want to take a look at this. I'm, I'm not sure this is something you want to take up to the to the dumping uh, area. Mm-hmm. And so he came out and t- took a look at it. And then, you know, I had to completely clean all of the equipment there and things were shut down. And it, it, it was, um, you know, over 100 degrees out there. In, in the heat of the day. And so it was, it was a good experience when you're 19, 20, 21 years old, but not something you'd wanna, wanna make a career of. So after I finished uh, at Fresno State and did my bachelor's in um, enology, I went to work for a winery just south of Fresno called Vidal. Mm-hmm. And um, Vidal was owned by the Nuri family, who uh, Mike Nuri's uh, younger brother was actually one of the professors at Fresno State. So he taught food science, nutrition, and a couple of enology classes. So Fred Nuri was, was one of uh, my professors as well. So I went to work for Mike, and we made a lot of grape concentrates. Um, the facility I went to, I was the assistant wine, hired as the assistant winemaker at a 13 million gallon facility. We were, uh, we had about 35 union guys during harvest. We had stills, so we were making brandy for Gallo, for Christian Brothers was actually the big, the big brandy back then. Gallo hadn't overtaken them in sales yet. Uh, we made grape concentrates, which basically you, you take the grape juice and, and remove enough of the water. So you take it from about 22 bricks up to about 68 bricks. So it's kind of like grape syrup. And it was used a lot in fruit drinks um, in the 80s. Um, High C, was, which was owned by Coca-Cola and then Slice for Pepsi. Right. Uh, they had these 10% natural fruit drinks. They used a lot of grape concentrate for that natural, natural stuff. So I worked there for three years and uh, kind of uh, went back to graduate school, studied biochemistry there. I, I got in with one of my professors, Howard Ono, uh, was just an amazing um, biochem teacher and um, was still working at the winery. The winery paid for school, so I was getting a little bit of time off and I got to defer my student loans. and. 
but I was kind of growing restless working at a large facility, you know, and I would sometimes go up on the weekends to visit friends up in Napa and Sonoma, old roommates. And ultimately by about 1986, um, the union struck uh, during the middle of harvest, which was a pretty demanding thing because we had this large facility with essentially no management. It was the winemaker, myself, a lady in the office and the plant manager. And like I said, we had 35 union guys per shift even, you know, we, we would, when we had three shifts and uh, all of a sudden, you know, we weren't, they walked off the job and we had grapes that had to be processed. And I'll never forget, they stopped on a Monday at about noon. A couple guys came in and told me, here's where I'm at with the chillers here. Where, and I'm like, well, what are you guys doing? And I had heard rumors that they were gonna strike. And he, he just kind of looked at me and I, I said, oh, okay. So they walked off and we'd already crushed about 600 tons of whites. And so the winemaker and I had to finish processing those grapes. So we had to get them out of the destemmer into the tank. Uh, we had to dejuice the tanks, press the tank, then um, centrifuge the juice, chill the juice. Long story short, it took Jeff and I four days. I didn't get home till Thursday. It took Jeff and I four days kind of sleeping at different machinery. Um, to get this done. And we, we were down for about two weeks and then we hired a scab labor to come in and replace the guys, which was for me a great thing because then I had to train these guys on all the equipment. And I really got to be hands-on on, on all of the equipment. So I was running boilers and stills and big filters and you know ammonia refrigeration. And it was just an amazing experience for somebody who's like 23 or 24 years old to get to run like a whole winery as you're training these people. So I made it through that harvest, but then kind of decided that this wasn't for me anymore. And I wanted to learn to make wine in, um, in small barrels. And so I applied to 20 wineries in Napa and 20 wineries in Sonoma, kind of just blind sent them resumes and I only got two letters, but I got a couple of other letters back. I got a letter from a couple of wineries that basically said, we're a family operation and we don't hire from outside of the family. You need not apply here again. And I thought, wow, man, that's per that's a, I'm glad I didn't get in with those guys because that wouldn't have been any fun. But I got offered a seller job at Flora Springs um, James Hall was the assistant winemaker at the time. Uh, Donald Patz was working in marketing and the winemaker was a Fresno State grad, a guy named Ken Dice. And so I got offered a, um, like a seller master job, um, but it was only for the harvest. They couldn't guarantee that I, I would stay on and it was for like 12 bucks an hour. Now, mind you, I was only making about 25 or 28 grand a year anyway down in the valley as a salaried employee. So it wasn't like I was making a ton of money, but um, I knew I was gonna have to take a little bit of a pay cut. And then I got offered the assistant winemaker job at Deloach Vineyards out in West Santa Rosa. And I had become familiar with Deloach Vineyards uh, primarily through their Chardonnays. We were doing, um, 
blind tastings uh, in a couple of tasting groups that I belong to. And I, I just thought they made some really nice wines. And so, you know, I'd been up there a couple of times to visit the tasting room and they seemed like a, you know, a pretty reasonable place to, to apply to. And um, so they offered me the job and, and that's how I ended up in Sonoma County, finally. I'm just trying to think what would have happened had you taken Flora Springs job. Maybe you wouldn't be Pats and Hall. Maybe it would be Pats and Cabral. Yeah, it could have been, or it could have been, <laughs> um, or I could have just been making a lot of Cabernet. That's you know? true. Uh, again, uh, you know, I think had I gone to the Napa Valley, um, my interest might have, my my focal point might have been a little more on what what was really the, kind of the king of grapes in the valley at the time, especially in the mid 80s. Oh, yeah. You, know? sure. you, you had guys that were just starting up these these brands like, you know, Bryant and Screaming Eagle and, you know. Um, so, yeah, I could have be, become fascinated with Cabernet, I think, just as easily as I have with Pinot Noir. It was kind of funny because at Deloach, we really didn't make a whole lot of Pinot. It was like less than a thousand cases. And, um, you know, a third of our production was white Zinfandel. That's what kind of paid the bills. Yeah, what was interesting about that, though, is it was all these old vine zins. So these were vineyards planted in the early 1900s. Um, all along Olivet and Piner Road, kind of West Santa Rosa, that now people would recognize names like Paletti Ranch or Carlisle Vineyard, Papera Ranch, Cytone Ranch, um, Feeney, Montafi. All of this stuff was going into White Zinfandel. And, uh, you know, I see it as really saving a lot of those heritage vines um, because if those growers hadn't had a place for those grapes to grow, I really do feel that that more of those vines would have been pulled out and we would have lost some really good, good fruit. Um, you got to remember a grower's going to grow what's going to feed his family, you know, and, and you know, you watch growers kind of shift from red to white or from Pinot to Chardonnay or from Petite Syrah to Zinfandel. And, you know, they they want to be able to provide something that's going to, you know, give them a, a way to take care of their family and still take care of their land as well. Keep the land in the, in the family, not having to sell it off. So uh, those old Zins really uh, made some spectacular white Zinfandel. We'd crush them up. Back then, there was no whole cluster pressing really per se. And we would run them through a destemmer and then press it out. And you'd get this really kind of dark pink juice and ferment it out. And yeah, um, big acids because, you know, you weren't picking them at, we were picking those ends at 22 and a half to maybe 24 so that the alcohol was in that kind of high 13s maybe and uh, doing cold ferments. And so it was an interesting process that I learned, but then also getting to know the vineyards in that area of Santa Rosa was really, really beneficial for me. But we had a little bit of Pinot Noir just outside the winery, on the, on the winery property out front. And, um, you know, I started tasting more and more Pinots from, from around Sonoma County 
when I was in graduate school, I had a buddy working up at Dry Creek Vineyards for Larry Levine and um, Phyllis Azunas at the time. And uh, he said, you know, you got to get on these guys' mailing list. Um, they're a little tiny producer, and it was Burt Williams and Ed Selium. And they only made maybe half a dozen wines by then. This was, you know, 84, 85. I think I remember um, the Lino Martinelli's in, um, uh, Olivet Lane, Rocchioli, Allen, and I don't ever remember seeing any Chardonnay till way later. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was only a few vineyards, but it was also pretty expensive. I remember we used to have to pay 12 bucks for the Allen Vineyard and, you know, you could buy really good old vine like Lytton Springs Inns for seven bucks. So paying 12 or almost double that for Pinot was, was a little bit of a stretch when you were on, a, on an assistant winemaker's budget in Sonoma County. But I really kind of got into uh, several tasting groups because I didn't know a lot of people in Sonoma County other than old classmates or roommates. And that's just how you get to know people. You join tasting groups and you, um, you participate in different technical groups. So Deloach was a great place to just learn more and more about Sonoma County. And I just started to fall more and more in love with, with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and kind of just winemaking in general. Was it your first mailing list? I'm, I'm utterly fascinated by the fact that you were actually a customer of William Selling before you became a winemaker. Yeah, it was kind of funny. When I took the job, you know, they had me on the list um, and every customer had a number. And I think when John Dyson bought the, the winery, John and Kathy bought the winery in 98, they had somewhere around 18 to 20,000 people on the list. And I was customer number 476. Oh my goodness. So, so uh, I think that kind of legitimized to John a little bit that, that I knew the wines and, and then Bert was the one who had recommended me to, to, to talk to John and interview with them, you know, many years later, so. So back in 1998 is when you joined William Sellian. Yeah, so kind of after Deloach, I was there for six vintages. Randy Ullum, the winemaker there who now heads up the, the KJ brand, um, probably one of the most influential winemakers I've ever worked for. He was so much about doing things right all of the time. Um, and it didn't matter if you were making a $6 bottle of wine or you were trying to make a $25 bottle of wine. You never cut corners and you never um, skimped on sanitation or doing things the right way. And, and Randy was always about doing things the right way. The other thing Randy taught me too was, you know, while we looked at numbers, we ran, he and I ran most of the chemistries or the lab work there, at least the first couple of vintages I was there. And, um, you know, he was all about, you know, taste your wines, taste the wines, yeah. taste them at different stages. You know, every time you go out into the cellar to pull samples, taste the samples before you bring them into the lab or taste them in the lab and understand the different or the full life cycle of a wine from, from juice to fermentation, through fermentation, through malolactic fermentation, and then aging all the way up to bottling. 
And then even after bottling, you know, you kind of still have that responsibility to taste those wines periodically just to see how they're developing in the bottle. And did you, did you do the right things up to bottling? And so Randy was just one of those guys that at first, like the first six months, I was kind of like, what the heck did I get myself into? Because it's like I couldn't please the guy. He would have a list of work just a mile long and it's like you could never complete the list every night. Or I would miss something as simple as, you know, there would be a water hose outside that had a drip on it that, that Cecil DeLoach had seen and, you know, went crazy about. Or I forgot to turn the lights on. Yeah, I worked a lot of night shifts, so I forgot to turn outside lights on before I left. Or, or I forgot to turn off certain lights in the cellar before I left. So, you know, it was very much crossing every T and dotting every I, not just in winemaking, but in record keeping, taking care of the facility, um, taking care of the equipment. Uh, I did a lot of the equipment maintenance um, in the springtime in the early years. So 87, 88, 89, we would run out of work to do in the cellar. So Randy and I'd go out and work in the vineyards and I would sulfur dust vineyards or I would spray and disc and, you know, work on equipment out in the vineyards. So it was um, kind of a little bit of full circle of what I had experienced as a kid. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson.